At a point, it was actually kind of an insecurity, to be honest, because after I changed careers, my accomplishments in ballet didn't mean anything. I had to literally start from scratch, especially getting to that first job. Welcome to the Career Relaunch Podcast, where we discuss how to reinvent your career. My name is Joseph Liu, and I'm here to help you gain the clarity, confidence, and courage to overcome the challenges of making big career changes so you can do more meaningful work and enjoy your professional life. In each episode, I feature people who have stepped off the beaten path to reinvent their careers. We talk through their unique personal journeys, the challenges they overcame, and the lessons they learned along the way to help you understand what it takes to relaunch your own career. Today, my guest will share her story of going from a professional ballerina to a product designer at a fintech startup. She'll describe what triggered her to walk away from a dream that was years in the making and the surprising links you can find between two seemingly unrelated careers. Afterwards, during today's Mental Fuel, I'll share a few of the insecurities I wrestled with when I started over in my own career. Making any sort of major career pivot involves a lot of bravery, risk, and complication. You're not only dealing with the practicalities of switching career paths, but also the insecurities associated with starting over. Today, I'm speaking with Rina Takikawa, a product designer based in Los Angeles. She's one of the founding members at Mooch, a fintech startup building a Gen Z budgeting app where she leads design and product experience. Rena has been featured in press outlets such as Business Insider and Built In and has spoken at the University of Arizona, UX Copenhagen, ID8 Labs, and Career Foundry, amongst others. Only a few years ago, before transitioning into the tech sector, Rena used to have a very different life as a professional ballerina for the Ballet de Catalunya in Spain. She actually grew up dreaming of becoming a ballerina and started her journey at the age of five during her first baby ballet classes in Singapore. Her family eventually moved to New York and she started training professionally at the age of 11, went on to attend a performing arts high school, a ballet conservatory for university, and signed her first professional ballet contract at the age of 19. Now, I really enjoyed talking arena because I was also someone who had initially set a professional goal for myself at a very young age, ended up also investing years into eventually achieving that goal, only to then abruptly walk away from all those years of investment to pursue another career path. And this sort of decision to let go of a dream you once held onto so tightly turns out to be quite a common one amongst the clients, listeners, and audiences I cross paths with in my line of work. Today, we're going to talk about why people make these brave leaps, what you can do to manage the pivot, and how much you end up learning about yourself when you're forced to reconsider what truly makes you happy. You can get all the show notes from today's conversation at careerrelaunch.net slash 96. Rena spoke with me from Los Angeles. Hello, Rena. Welcome to the Career Relaunch Podcast. It is great to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. Very excited to be here today. Me too. All right, let's get started here by, first of all, talking about what you're up to right now, and then we're going to go back in time and talk about your former career. I would love to start off by just finding out what you've been focused on recently in both your professional and also your personal life. I am currently a product designer at a financial technology startup called Mooch. We are a budgeting app powered by blockchain. 
and we focus on budgeting for Gen Zs. So we have a big Gen Z community of over 50,000 people. In my personal life, I enjoy participating in speaking events, and I'm also focused on writing a newsletter every week. I do content creation here and there as well. And I'm just very passionate about overall personal branding and sharing my story. So that's a little bit about me. (laughs) Now, as I understand it, Rena, you are a product designer at Mooch. In layman's terms, explain exactly what does a product designer do? A product designer is focused on the product development of an app On top of actually designing the actual app, I'm also focused on the partner's experience using the app. So I'm mostly focused on how can we design a seamless experience for these people. So it's a little bit factoring everything about a business and a product and experience in general. And do you also get into user experience? So the UX versus product design? Do they overlap? Are they related? So that's basically the partner experience that I was talking about. It's essentially user experience. So what is the experience like during onboarding, during their signup process? What is their experience like using an edit functionality? What is your experience look like creating something on an interface? How does the feature function? Whereas user interface is more so visual designs and how does the layout actually work? What do they see on the actual app? And product design is basically a coupling UX and UI together, but also focusing on the actual product division and business goals. I know that this is a big part of your life right now and definitely what you're focused on at this moment. You haven't always been a product designer in the fintech space, and this show is all about changing careers. I understand you used to be a professional ballerina. Let's go back in time and talk about your former life as a ballerina, and then we can talk about how you transitioned into fintech. I'd love to go all the way back to the beginning. How did you get interested in ballet? I started ballet when I was five years old, and I believe the reason why was my aunt was a former ballerina as well. And so she persuaded my mom to put me in ballet classes. (laughs) And this was in New York. Is that right? Is that where you grew up? I grew up in New York, but I was born in Singapore. So I actually started my baby ballet classes in Singapore. (laughs) Do you remember those classes like do you have memories I of do. In, okay you do and what was that like did you like them did you oh think my it gosh. was different from the other activities you were involved with oh my gosh yeah lots of great memories there very happy memories I know my parents were quite busy when I was young so I couldn't go to ballet classes like every week it was more so like once in three weeks but I was always very very excited for my next ballet class I remember all like the ballet kids would exchange candies after class and I would bring like a whole bag of chocolates and I would just give them to like the other kids. It was very wholesome. (laughs) I can't remember if I talked with you about this last time, Rena, but I've got a daughter who's five and a half years old right now. And yeah, we took her to baby ballet right down the street. I would take her once a week. And I think she started, it was pre-pandemic. So she was going at like the age of three. We're not doing it anymore. And I guess the question that's running in my head is at what point does this go from being kind of like a fun thing to do as a kid to something that became more serious for you? When did that happen? Eight 
to 10. I think when I first started like going to point classes, when I first got my point shoes, it was difficult, but it was a challenge that I was excited about. And I think from there, I was kind of imagining my future already as a ballerina. And then I moved to New York. The teachers there were also very inspiring. And I think that is the real moment where I was like, I want to be like my teacher. My teacher was my biggest role model when I was like 12 years old, all the way up to 20. I remember always looking up to her, always fascinated whenever I see her dance. And I'm like, I want to be like her when I grew up. And I think that was when I was like, I really want to make it to this ballet world. And what does it take to make it in the ballet world? Did that become clear to you from the start? How do you assess whether you are one of the, I guess, few ballet students that can actually make it professionally in the world of ballet? Ballet is a very, very competitive industry and there's a lot of females, so it's very competitive. Um, All I knew at that age of like when I was trying to, I guess, plan out my future and kind of break down the steps in order to go professional is I have to keep being persistent, keep training, go to competitions, get awarded, get scholarships, get exposure to international schools and companies, go to summer intensives and get exposure from other prestigious schools so that directors can start seeing me. I never once had a summer vacation. I've always been training every weekend, every day, every holiday, every summer vacation, quote unquote vacation, I would be at a summer intensive at a different school. You don't go to college if you are pursuing to be a professional ballerina, just because if you want to be a professional ballerina, you have to start young. Usually people aim to sign with a company at the age of 18. So it sounds like this is the level of commitment that it takes in order to break through in that industry. And I know you mentioned school before, so it sounds like your schooling was actually focused on the performing arts also. So I think you went to the Frank Sinatra School of the Arts for high school. You eventually would go on to the University of Cincinnati, is that correct, to do your BFA in ballet? Yes. Could you give us a glimpse into your journey as a ballerina and how that evolved then over time? going from high school through doing and studying ballet at the University of Cincinnati. I got accepted to performing arts high school in New York. And my schedule when I was in high school was a lot of dancing. I would dance in the morning. I would go to education classes, your regular high school, like English, math, science, those things. And after those, I would go to rehearsals in school. And then after rehearsals, I would go to my pre-professional intense training studio and train more there. And then came the decision to make on whether I should be auditioning for studio companies or applying to college. And that was a big, big question because if you're not a prodigy, you need a plan B. (laughs) So ultimately my decision was go to school because I guess I could make my parents happy. Plus also get the ballet experience that I wanted. I chose the University of Cincinnati College Conservatory of Music because from what I saw, they had a good reputation of graduates going on to professional companies. 
It was a really good experience. I went there for two years instead of the regular four, just because at the age of 19, that's when I signed my first professional contract, and I decided to drop out of school just because being a professional ballerina was the ultimate goal. And I signed that contract, which was my dream. So when I signed that contract, I dropped everything and I moved to Spain alone to pursue this full time. Before we get to your time working as part of that company in Spain, can you give me a sense of some of the roles that you had up until this point as a ballerina? I was Kitchery in Don Quixote. Very, very exciting. One of my favorite ballets in the University of Cincinnati. I had a lot of soloist roles, so I was Cupid in their Don Quixote production as well. I was the Silver Fairy in Sleeping Beauty. I was one of the fairies in our Cinderella production in collaboration with the Dayton Ballet's artistic director. Winter Fairy, is that right? Winter Fairy, yes. Thank you. (laughs) I'm like, I was one of the fairies. I forgot which one. (laughs) Another role, I was part of the Corps de Ballet in La Bayadere. I was the first person. uh, This is like all ballet terminologies, but there's this part of the scene in Bayadere where every dancer has to do like an arabesque to ponche and I had to do that 36 times because I was the first person. So (laughs) that was also one of the main highlights of my time at the conservatory. I want to switch gears here, Rina, and talk about your time in Spain, because here you are as someone who has now left college. You are 19 at this time, so teenager still. And you moved to Spain all by yourself. Can you take me back to the moment when you landed in Spain? What was running through your head? First of all, being in a new country, but also getting ready to sign this contract to join a company there. It was very exciting. It was like a dream come true, especially when I got to Spain. We could also talk about the whole like annoying process of getting a visa and getting an apartment all in Spanish. That was a real pain, especially doing it alone at 19 too. It was very overwhelming, I remember. I don't know how I did that. I don't think I could even do it right now, to be honest. So I give props to myself for that, for handling that whole situation alone. I remember being very, very happy. I'm like, okay, this is the start of my professional journey. I've made it through pre-professional training, all those long, hard years of working hard and I finally made it to my goal. And this was the moment that I've been waiting for since a very young age. And I'm here now and I can't wait to work hard. And so those were the feelings that I was feeling when I first landed in Spain. Now, I don't know a ton about the world of ballet, Rina. I guess my only real exposure to it was I went to Northwestern University as an undergraduate student. And between the school of communication and the school of music, there were actually a pretty sizable group of students there focused on the performing arts. And I was actually an RA my junior year at, oh, the nice. human- yeah, <laughs> at a humanities dorm that was very popular among students majoring in things like dance or theater. So I got a bit of a glimpse into how hard it is to make it as a dancer. And especially when it comes to ballet, I feel like it's typically portrayed as extremely competitive, almost cutthroat. 
at least in the popular press and, and in Hollywood, I'm thinking about things like Black Swan. So let's just talk reality here, the good, bad, and ugly of your time at that company. And maybe it's best to first of all, start off with the good, because it sounds like you landed there. You were very excited. What did you like about being a ballerina in a professional company? I was definitely very humbled. It was hard work getting to where I got. So I didn't want to take anything for granted. I consider myself very lucky too, because as mentioned, this is very competitive. And even signing a contract to be with a ballet company, I was over cloud nine. So I consider myself very lucky, very grateful for this opportunity and very humbled that I'm even at this spot because a million girls would kill to even have this spot in the company. Those were my emotions. What was your relationship like with the other competitive, I'm assuming, girls who are also part of your company? The reason why I was so grateful and humbled, not, of course, being in the ballet company, but aside from that, it was because I was surrounded by people that were so talented. Like never in a million years would I have ever thought that I would be training or dancing next to people that were training in the most prestigious schools in Europe. Like schools that I could never get into, I was dancing next to them in a company together. And I think that was when I would step back and I'll be like, wow, I, I can't believe I'm dancing with all of these talented people, like almost prodigies that were at the same company dancing together. Like what's going on? That's why I felt so lucky, so grateful, so humbled. And I learned a lot from them. They were very nice people and I definitely knew my place at the company. So like, I'm not trying to be cutthroat here. So all I wanted to do was learn from them. So I think that's part of the good news that we're starting with is that I was exposed to a lot of very talented people and nice, nice people, I think. What was the hardest thing about being part of that company? I think, especially since we're talking about an international company here where I don't speak the language it was extremely hard for me to even be in this country because Spanish was the only language that people were talking in. So I think building upon that pressure, I ideally wanted to have more support from the leadership team. But it's not very common unless you are a very big government-supported company that I feel like the leadership would be good. So I was kind of expecting, like not being too supported but I think it really hit me when it was my first professional year I'm like oh it is very hard when there's no strong base of leadership I know when we were talking before this recording you'd also mentioned that there were some toxic aspects of working in a company would you mind walking me through just what aspects of it felt toxic to you directors how they um I guess valued their dancers, how they treated them in terms of just, I guess, compensation, but also hours and performance opportunities and values and morals, those things. That's where we'll get into why I am who I am today, like my values and my morals. It's deeply rooted in my experience as a ballerina. So it sounds like 
on the one hand, being a professional ballerina, it was incredibly exciting. You're surrounded by incredibly talented individuals. At the same time, sounds extremely intense, long hours, perhaps some elements of there being a toxic environment. What was your mental health like during this time? We'll get to your physical in a moment. It wasn't the best, but I don't know if I have just toxic positivity. I still remember like literally drilling this in my head. Like, don't think like that. Don't think like that. You're so lucky to be here. You don't have the privilege to even be thinking about your mental health right now. That w- I still remember telling myself that like a million girls would kill to be in your spot. Why are you even thinking about mental health? And that's because ballet is so competitive that just to be in this spot, like you should be so thankful. And I don't think I even gave myself the space to even think about mental health. Like even if it's toxic, I don't care. Like you're going to. Like I'm here. Yeah. Yeah. Like this is the world. This is the reality. Like I can't complain. And I knew that that was what I signed up for. Kind of comes with the territory. So why allow yourself to complain? I know when we spoke before, you also said something that really struck a nerve with me. You'd said that as much as you had put your whole life into ballet, you didn't know if you wanted to keep doing it. What exactly were you questioning at that time? That was right before I pulled the trigger to make my career change, actually. It was the growing, growing pressure of, I guess, my mental health and my physical health and just taking a step back to see the experience that I was having in this company. Is it really worth it? I think at a certain point, I was like, okay, is this sustainable? Because I can drill a million positive affirmations into my head, but And I think I just had a breaking point. And even if I change companies and dance at a different company, is this also going to be my experience at that company? And I think the weight of my experience at this company, it being my first professional experience, it just took a big toll on me. And it gave me a very scared impression of what I would be going through for the rest of my career if I were to stay on this path. That's when I really had to face reality. And by facing reality, I had to be completely transparent with myself and what I wanted out of life. It was extremely hard just because I was finally at this path of being a ballerina because I signed my first professional contract and am dancing in my first professional company. So It's just very ironic that I was even questioning this, but because of everything that I was going through, I think I really just had to step back and see if I would be down to put myself through more of these just to climb a ladder. That's when I remember I was just sitting in my apartment in Spain, just literally uh, crying (laughs) a lot. There's also the investment of my parents and my teachers. They've put so much money into my training They've put so much belief in me. They've seen my growth. They see my potential. And do I really want to let them down? It's tough. We talk about this on this show, Rena. You've invested so much time into one particular career path, and you almost don't want to even allow yourself to entertain the idea of walking away from it. Was there a particular moment 
that you can remember when you actually did decide that you're not going to pursue ballet anymore? After my whole breakdown of me thinking about all these factors in my head, in my apartment in Spain, seeing if I should pull the trigger or not, what I decided to do after that was go to Japan to get treatment because I was also suffering from an injury that couldn't really be diagnosed in all the hospital visits in my time in Spain. So I decided to go back to Japan just to take a little bit of a break because I thought maybe time was what I needed to form a decision. And there were a lot of things that happened in Japan. I remember being so traumatized by ballet that I couldn't even watch any ballet videos or listen to any classical music. Every time I saw a ballet video on my Instagram page, I had to skip it over or else I would get anxiety. And I think it just ruined my passion for ballet as a whole. So I think that's when I decided, okay, if I can't even be listening or watching ballet, <laughs> I don't know how I'm going to even dance in a company given my mental health towards ballet at this point. Now you would eventually move back to New York, is that correct? And yes. then you started to think about doing some other things. Can you walk me through how you started to then pick up the pieces and move forward having now decided to walk away from ballet? When I went back to New York, I started becoming more active in my career change exploration, per se. That was when I started exploring courses and seeing what fields are even outside of ballet, what normal person my age would be doing. <laughs> so I had to re-educate myself on those things and figure out, oh, there are internships, there are work studies, like, oh, these things exist, that's interesting. So during that process as well, that was when I started also exploring other potential career fields such as there's business, there's marketing. I took a lot of intro classes just to get my feet wet into different types of industries and fields. During that time, it was actually the start of COVID too. So it was a very scary time, but even though it was scary, there was also opportunities in terms of everything became virtual. So it gave me chances to actually explore things all online in my own time. So it really did benefit this exploration period. And then which direction did you ultimately decide to go in with your continuing education? I was debating between psychology, languages, and design. I ultimately chose design, but the reason why I chose design is because I remember when I was little, I had to choose between design and ballet. I was actually very passionate in creating things since a young age. Uh, I loved scrapbooking. I loved playing with clay. I loved just designing in general, but I loved ballet more. So I chose ballet. So when I stumbled upon design again, I'm like, okay, maybe this is my chance to actually take this seriously and learn more about design like it has some sort of psychological aspect it has the actual creation aspect it has this problem solving aspect and i think understanding that i saw the potential of me actually enjoying it so that's when i pulled the trigger and i decided to go to school for it 
and I decided to enroll in Career Foundry's year-long boot camp just to get a better understanding of foundation and more about what this field is like. Last question for you about how you end up going into this current industry of yours before we talk about some of the lessons you've learned along the way. How did you end up landing your role at Mooch? I knew that ultimately I've wanted to inspire other people using my career journey. So that was when I was being very proactive and investing in my personal branding as well. And doing so actually led me to a couple of opportunities, uh, starting with internships and also that eventually became job roles. And then my first employer actually found me through LinkedIn. And I think that's because of all my content creation that I was doing um, since starting the bootcamp. You were blogging at the time, is that right? I was doing a lot of content posting on LinkedIn, on my blogs, on Instagram. And when I was Working on my first full-time job, which was a uh, B2B SaaS product, I already knew that fintech is actually an industry that I've always wanted to work in. So that was my goal. I knew I wanted to work in the B2C space as well, because I do love to understand how consumers behave and think. I've always known that. It's just very fascinating to me. So I knew that my first full-time job was just a transition state, just to get my experience going. And that's when a friend of mine actually introduced me to Mooch. From there, I actually became one of the founding members. So I think I was like number four into the team. So I've been with the team since pre-launch and it's been just an amazing journey. It really feels like I'm building with friends and I can't be more grateful that I am at this company. I'm building a product that I love. I'm building it with people that I love as well. The last thing I want to talk about before we wrap up Rina, are just some of the things you've learned along the way of your career journey. So you've gone from ballet, went through a very challenging period, eventually decided to walk away from that career, and then have now landed in a place that sounds like you're really, really happy. I know you recently spoke at UX Copenhagen in early 2023. And as I understand it, you drew some parallels between ballet and product design. What are one or two ways that you see the two being somewhat similar. These are things that I never even thought could be similar when I first started my career change. And it all started making sense when I started becoming more involved in product design. Product design and ballet are both creations where emotions are very important in the process development. For example, how do I want my audience to feel as they watch me dance? is a big driver as to how I'm presenting my movements and how I am even showcasing artistry while I dance. So for example, in Swan Lake, it's a very sad story. In Don Quixote, I'm very sassy and I want it to be a fun experience when the audience is watching this ballet. In Sleeping Beauty, it's very happy. You know, if I'm a fairy, it has to be very light and very like staccato, very happy, light feeling. And so I think takeaway here is what's the emotion that I want to express while I'm dancing? And same in product design. What do I want my partners to feel as they go through these screens and go through these experiences? The second thing I I covered was structure. In ballet, 
there's a lot of behind the scenes that goes on into presenting a movement. From the audience perspective, it might look like I'm just lifting my leg or I'm just dancing on my toes, but there's actually a lot of technical sides of how I'm actually presenting that movement. In comparison for product design, how am I structuring complicated technical logic of how this feature is supposed to work into very processable designs where people using the app will be like, oh, this is super easy. I just toggle this on and toggle this off. The hierarchy ways of looking at a specific screen is very easy. Like it's very easy to use. The usability is there. The experience is there. Like we're not supposed to make people think when they use a design. The result of that is how well do you structure those complicated logic into processable designs? One thing we've also spoken about before and something I know you have written about is this idea that you should prioritize fulfillment in your career and life. And although I know that makes sense intuitively, I also know that fulfillment is not always an easy thing to prioritize because sometimes it feels at odds with practicality or societal expectations or investment or other constraints that you have in your life. And I would be interested to hear, how would you describe how you've attempted to prioritize fulfillment in your career and life? It comes down to a lot of things, but I think the first thing that I want to emphasize is values and morals when it comes to deciding what you want to do. I feel very humble to even be able to say this because I am able to prioritize fulfillment in my life, but I know that that's not the case for everybody. So. In order to understand what fulfillment means to you, I have a very strong basis of what I want from a company and what I want my day-to-day to look like. Transparency and awareness around mental health. I would like to work within a company that values it as much as I do and doesn't ignore it because at the end of the day, we're all human and I want to be in a company where they know that we're all human. I really try to evaluate a leadership team before I say yes to an offer or before I decide to continue or not continue with the company. I think that drives fulfillment for me a lot, mental health, well-being. And also, are you working towards a vision that you want to work for? For me, modernizing finances has been a goal of mine. So even if I am experiencing hardships at work or work stress the vision is there and i know that my teammates and i are aligned on our vision together so that is how i persevere and can persevere so i think going back to the whole values vision is also a big part for me if the team is right and if the vision is there then i know i can do it and i think that plays a big role in value and then fulfillment. Last question for you, Rena, before we wrap up with what you're doing now. I think sometimes if you come from a very different industry, trying to break into a new sector or job, you might actually see your background as a bit of a liability, especially if you're competing with more traditional candidates for a specific role. (laughs) I'm just speculating that this may have come up with you. And I'm just wondering if someone is struggling with this, do you have any tips on how you can see your background as a strength 
instead of a weakness. This is something that I'm actually still struggling with. Yeah, it's definitely a big liability. And at a point, it was actually kind of an insecurity, to be honest, because after I changed careers, my accomplishments in ballet didn't mean anything. It was kind of a pride clear as well. <laughs> but I had to literally start from scratch, especially getting to that first job as well, because again, accomplishments in my previous industry did not matter. Those 15 years of hard work did not matter. There are workarounds, but also what I did was embrace my background. And the way I did that was through personal branding. How do I make myself more valuable by utilizing my previous experience? There was really no hard skills that could translate over to technology. So I really had to see how I could work with my background. And that was by actually embracing my background and seeing how I can use my soft skills that I learned in ballet translate to technology. And I really tried to market myself through personal branding. The first thing not to do is to be insecure about your background, like how I was at the very start, and to think that that means nothing because it does. I think that if I were to continue being insecure about my background when I first started career changing, I don't think I would have given a talk at UX Copenhagen because ultimately my talk at UX Copenhagen was what are the parallels between classical ballet and product design. The reason why I got to do that talk is because I started embracing my background and started actually trying to break down how I was able to transition into a totally separate industry from ballet. I want to wrap up, Rena, with what you're doing right now. Tell me a little bit more about your growth newsletter. I recently, very recently, started writing about my growth and documenting my journey. I think I'm very passionate in growth in general. And I think I've always had a passion for documenting things. I was documenting my personal branding and all of that. And that was how my first employer found me. And I think even now, even though I do have experience and I have a job and all of that, I still prioritize growth in my day-to-day. -day. And so I created this newsletter where I share with other people what I'm learning at work. If they are interested in product design or startups, I write a lot about that. And even when I have conversations like the one we're having right now, I write my takeaways in those newsletters. Basically, it's a newsletter about life, growth, and everything in between. So it's been an exciting journey. <laughs> if people want to learn more about you, or if they want to sign up for your growth newsletter, where could they go? You can search me on LinkedIn or Instagram. Uh, it's just my first name and my last name, pretty standard. <laughs> Finally, are you still dancing? Yes, I am dancing. I am. I dance at least once a week just to keep my technique up. And it's been a great time. I think I made the right decision at the end of the day because I now have my passion back. Well, thank you so much, Rena, for taking me through your life as a ballerina and the steps you took to open up a new path for yourself in product design during the pandemic, by the way, and also the importance of prioritizing fulfillment in your life. So best of luck with your role at Mooch and your newsletter and also your dancing. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much, Joseph. It was such a great time.
So I hope you enjoyed hearing Rena's perspectives on what to do when you lose your passion you once had for your career, making the complex decision of walking away and finding the common threads across your different professional endeavors. Now it's time to wrap up with today's mental fuel, where I'm going to share a few of the insecurities I had to wrestle with when I started over in my own career. Before we get to today's mental fuel, I wanted to thank Brand Yourself for supporting this episode of Career Relaunch. Brand Yourself offers simple tools and services to help control what people find when they Google you. To clean up, protect, and improve how you look online, visit brandyourself.com and use promo code RELAUNCH to get 50% off a premium membership. This is the part of the show called Mental Fuel, where I finish the show with a brief personal story related to one of the topics we covered today and wrap up with a simple challenge to help you move forward with your own career goals. So for today's mental fuel, I wanted to pick up on something Rena mentioned about her insecurities after changing careers. And as she put it, feeling like her accomplishments in ballet didn't mean anything when she embarked on a new career path. Starting over from scratch is tough. First, there's the practical side of it all. You've got to unwind everything you invested into your former career path, rework your resume, land a new job, learn a whole new set of skills, and then you got to convince others to take you seriously in your new line of work. But then there's also the emotional side of making an unconventional transition that relates to your own psychology, mindset, and self-confidence. And this emotional side of changing careers is what I want to take a moment to cover right now. The insecurities we all feel when we're doing something we haven't done before. So I thought I'd just open up a little bit myself and share three of the insecurities I personally felt during one of my major career transitions when I walked away from a decade-long marketing career I'd built for myself in the corporate world to start my own solo career consultancy. And they relate to trust, timing, and traction, the three T's. First off, my insecurities around trust, namely people trusting me. For example, I remember presenting at these conferences early on where I was the only speaker not working for a well-known company or when I first started coaching clients because I'd not had a lot of professional experience as a coach at the time, I felt a ton of insecurity around clients taking me seriously or audiences seeing me as a credible speaker. Next, my insecurities around timing When I first started hosting workshops as an independent career consultant, it wasn't unusual for people in the audience to be a little older than me or to have many more years of experience than me in the workplace. So in the early days, I caught myself wondering if I'd departed from the corporate world just a bit too early. Although I'd had about 10 years of experience and could say I was a former senior brand manager, if I'd climbed up a couple more rungs of the corporate ladder, I could have said that I was a former marketing director or vice president or even chief marketing officer, which would, of course, carry a lot more clout. Even to this day, I sometimes still think about this. And finally, my insecurities around traction, feeling like I wasn't gaining progress as quickly as I wanted, whether it was not getting enough 
clients as quickly as I'd hoped or not securing as many speaking gigs as I wanted or my social media accounts not gaining followers or my online courses not immediately taking off or this podcast not gaining as many followers as I'd hoped for when it launched. Whenever I don't make progress as fast as I want, I sometimes find myself questioning whether I'm even on the right path. Now, I don't think of myself as an insecure person per se. And if you met me, I don't think I'd necessarily give off that vibe. But if I'm completely honest, insecurity is not something I've ever been able to completely rid myself of. Even when I do make progress, there's always a part of me that wonders if I'm coming across the way I want to, if I'm on the right track, or if I could be approaching things differently. Even if I feel completely ready to give a talk in front of a big audience with hundreds of people sitting there, there is always a part of me that wonders if people will find my session valuable. And even on an individual level, for example, if I enter a room full of seasoned professionals or have a coffee with someone I've met at a networking event, or even just start chatting with someone randomly, which I've been trying to do more of recently, I still sometimes catch myself wondering if I'm being engaging enough for them to want to keep talking with me. I feel like insecurity is a very normal part of any career change journey. And while people often talk about insecurities in negative terms, and it's certainly not good if it reaches a point where it affects your mental health and well-being, there are some hidden benefits to feeling at least momentarily insecure. It can motivate you to take actions to improve. It provides you with empathy to understand others who may also be struggling. It can help you become more self-aware of your strengths and weaknesses. It can help you build your resilience. And most of all, it just reminds you to always be humble. Nobody has it all figured out. Even those people you bump into who act like they've got it all figured out. In fact, especially those people who posture like this, I guarantee you, they do not. I've found that actually opening up and having the confidence to share your insecurities with someone you trust can actually help diffuse the grip it may have over you. And often, you may just find that you're not alone in feeling the way you do, which can also help normalize it. Being aware of and accepting insecurity as part of your career change journey is ultimately what you have to do in order to make some positive changes in your career. This takes me to a quote from the late basketball player, Kobe Bryant. I have self-doubt. I have insecurity. I have fear of failure. I have nights where I show up at the arena and I'm like, my back hurts, my feet hurt, my knees hurt. I don't have it. I just want to chill. We all have self-doubt. You don't deny it, but you also don't capitulate to it. You embrace it. So my challenge to you is to identify and name one of the insecurities you've felt recently in your own career. Share it with someone. I don't even want you to do anything about it. I don't want you to try and overcome it or dismiss it or shake it off. I just want you to be aware of it so you can identify it when it does show up. Accept it and not allow it to paralyze you. To realize that it doesn't mean you're doing anything wrong or that you've made the wrong choice or that you don't have any business doing what you're doing with your career right now. It's kind of just how things are when you're making any unconventional move and dealing with a lot of unknown. 
means. And it ultimately just means you're a normal human being who's still figuring things out just like the rest of us. If you would like to share something on your mind related to a struggle you have with your own career change journey, or if you've got a question you want me to address on the show, you can leave me a voicemail with your thoughts at careerrelaunch.net slash 96, where you can also find a summary of my discussion with Rena and learn more about her story. Again, that's careerrelaunch.net slash 96. Thanks so much for being part of the Career Relaunch listener community. And a special thanks again to Rina Takikawa for sharing her story with us today from Los Angeles. This episode was mixed by Liam McKenzie. Today's music was curated by Jonathan Rinaldi Pohl. And the Career Relaunch theme song was written and performed by Electrocardiogram. I'm Joseph Liu, and I'll talk to you next time.